Hello, and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week, we're discussing science using neutrons, and in particular, the ISIS neutron and muon source located in Harwell in Oxfordshire. With me to discuss that is Dr. Helen Walker, who's an instrument scientist on the ISIS neutron and muon source. Dr. Walker, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. So I've mentioned the ISIS source for neutrons and muons uh, as I've been introducing the podcast. Can you give us a, a brief introduction to this amazing facility? Sure. So the ISIS neutron and muon source is based at the STFC Rutherford Appleton Laboratory in Oxfordshire, and it's a world leading centre for research in the physical and life sciences. It's owned and operated by the Science and Technology Facilities Council, which is one of the councils that forms UK research and innovation. And the overarching aim for everyone working at ISIS is to use neutrons and muons to advance knowledge and improve lives. So at ISIS, we produce beams of neutrons and muons that allow scientists to study materials at the atomic level. And we do this with a suite of different kinds of instruments, which are sometimes described as super microscopes, rather misleading. But they've each been individually optimized for the study of different types of matter. So neutron and muon experiments are non-destructive and can often provide results that can't be achieved using other techniques. We support a national and international community of more than about 2,000 scientists who use neutrons and muons for research in physics, chemistry, material science, geology, engineering, and biology. And we work with both academia and industry to deliver scientific, socioeconomic, and environmental impact, addressing global challenges and answering fundamental questions. ISIS neutron and muon instruments are free to use for researchers as long as they publish their experiments so that the information provided is in the public domain. However, it is possible for industry to also use the instruments and keep their uh, results in the confidential if they pay to use us. So a typical year at ISIS will involve about 1,200 instruments going on across around 40 different instruments. So we'll see about 3,000 different users turn up. And on average, they'll come from about 30 different countries worldwide, although the vast majority are from the UK, and it will generate about 600 publications. Fantastic. And just so that I can imagine this in my head, can you give me an idea of the physical size of this machine? Yeah. OK, so um, above ground, what you can see are two large sort of aircraft hangar type buildings. And then we have a, a mound under which we have a synchrotron and a linear accelerator. So it is not possible for you to have a neutron source in a university or uh, a private company. Uh, small, medium enterprises are not going to be able to host their own neutron source. These are very large pieces of equipment, large pieces of infrastructure which employ a large number of people and are not cheap to run. So that's the facility itself, which sounds huge and massive and an enormous amount of research going on. Um, but a lot of this research is, of course, using the neutrons. So tell us a little bit about the science that can be done using neutrons. OK, so as I mentioned, we do a huge variety of different kinds of science, and it's everything through from sort of biomedical out to engineering, going via uh, 
archaeological um, investigations and art history. So basically, we will perform any kind of science experiment which will exploit unique properties of neutrons so that we know that it's the very best experiment that can be done using neutrons. Uh, this is something you wouldn't do using an X-ray diffractometer in a standard university undergraduate lab. It has to be exploiting the properties of neutrons. So the things that are special about neutrons are that, well, the neutron is a particle, but it also has a wavelength. This is wave-particle duality. And the wavelength of a neutron is very similar to the spacing between atoms in a structure. And that gives you a really great sensitivity when you're performing a diffraction experiment. So that's a really helpful property. The same can be said of X-rays. Their wavelength also matches very well. The difference is that the energy of a neutron, which has this perfect wavelength, is also the energy of processes that are happening in a material. So the vibrations of the atoms Whereas X-rays, this energy is way, way higher than anything that is happening in your sample. So we have, using neutrons, very easily access to both structural and dynamic information. Neutrons, generally, if you're thinking about scattering from charges, they are neutral particles, as the name might suggest. And this means that they can penetrate very deeply. You can also perform diffraction experiments using an electron. Now, an electron being charged is very rapidly going to get captured by another charge in your material, so they can't probe very deeply. The same is true of x-rays. Everybody's seen an x-ray of somebody's hand or leg and how easy it is to see the bone because they have absorbed the x-rays. So if you were to put a jet engine inside an x-ray beam, you would see the outer casing shape of the jet engine. You wouldn't be able to see anything going on inside. Neutrons being uncharged are able to penetrate very much more deeply so that you can do these large engineering-based investigations. They also, they are scattering from the nucleus. So with X-rays and electrons, they scatter from the electron cloud within the atom. Whereas the neutrons, they scatter from the nucleus via the nuclear strong force. And this is a rather high level, you need to know your particle physics in order to get your head around it. But the consequence that's exciting for us is that how strongly an atom scatters a neutron is not a simple linear or monotonic function. So whereas X-rays, they're scattering from the electron cloud. So if you have some hydrogen in your material and you have some lead, all you can see is the lead because it has so many more electrons than the hydrogen does. And the scattering power is related to that number of electrons. In using neutrons, on the other hand, hydrogen scatters incredibly strongly for neutrons. So this makes it really valuable for a lot of sort of looking at net zero, hydrogen economy, catalysis, these kind of projects where you need to know what the hydrogen is doing. This is something that neutrons are really brilliant at doing. They have a magnetic moment. The, new, the neutron has its own magnetic moment, which means it's going to be sensitive to magnetic structures. So it can be used to determine how the moments in the material are ordered. And it's a go-to technique for doing that sort of thing. Another thing about scattering from the nucleus is it means that different isotopes of the same atom will scatter differently. 
So an isotope is where you have the same number of protons and therefore necessarily the same number of electrons, but the number of neutrons can be different and you can have different stable isotopes of the same atom. So hydrogen has three isotopes, hydrogen, deuterium and tritium. And these all scatter differently because the neutron is scattering from the nucleus and not from the electron cloud. And you can use this, uh, this is commonly used in biomedical experiments where they maybe want to look at some incredibly complex molecule with hundreds of different functional groups in it. And they want to be able to look at what one particular part of it does. They can then use isotopic substitution. I have no idea how this is done because I'm not a synthetic biochemist by any stretch of the imagination, but they can selectively deuterate out some of the hydrogen in the molecule, and then they will be able to look specifically at one functional group within that system. So that's another really powerful thing it can do. And finally, I mentioned that um, we also use it for archaeometry, um, so the, the scientific study of archaeological artifacts and art history. Neutrons are non-destructive. So if you want to know whether the painting was created at the right time, does it use the right pigments? Neutrons can be used to investigate this without ripping up the painting, dunking it in various reagents and uh, greatly upsetting the museums. We can also use it, we recently had a study looking at Damascene steel and these beautiful swords that had come from Persia. And they wanted to identify whether they were the authentic early productions or if these were 19th century knockoffs to sell to gullible uh, British tourists. Um, and they were able to, to actually identify that one of them was made up of original components, but they hadn't originally been one piece. So there was a, the scabbard, and the, the handle was different, the hilt was different, and there was a different blade. But this is all information that we can obtain, which doesn't damage the artifact in question. Fantastic. It sounds like a vast range of different bits of science. And presumably, then, uh, a neutron source like ISIS is useful for certain types of investigation and complements other types of sources, like, like a synchrotron, like the diamond synchrotron, located only a few steps away from, uh, from ISIS. Are there areas of research where you can use both a neutron source and a synchrotron source together to, to pull out different aspects to answer a scientific question? Very much so. Um, so actually, because of this uh, complementarity, we have a system. So beam time is allocated based on proposals that are submitted, because with such a great resource that can do such a large range of different things, we always have more demand than we have capacity. And it is possible for some certain techniques that you can submit a proposal which will go jointly both to ISIS and to Diamond. And if you, you choose which facility you want to assess it, and then if it, it's sort of a double jeopardy thing, if it's accepted at the one facility, it will automatically be accepted at the other. So for example, I had um, some experiments where we were looking at something called pair distribution function. So this standard diffraction looks at the time average structure of a material. And these are the really nice sharp peaks you'll see in a diffractogram. Underneath that, 
there's some diffuse scattering going on, which if you're in a, a undergraduate lab, you just sort of model away as some background you're not interested in. But actually interesting things are going on down there. And this is something you study using pair distribution function. And this is getting rid of that time averaging. It's looking at the local structure. So whereas overall in your material, it might have uh, on average, perfect arrangement of black and white alternating atoms, say, you might find that locally that order isn't so perfect. And there's actual areas where you get a greater concentration of one over the other. And that can have important consequences for the properties of a material. For example, in alloys, it's very important, uh, metallurg metallurgical alloys, how the atoms are distributed within that system on a local level has profound influences for its hardness, for its ductility, for things like that. So that's why you want to know about local structure. And that's something you can do very easily going from doing both an X-ray experiment and a neutron experiment, where you're perhaps targeting different elements within your alloy. So something that's difficult for X-ray sources typically will be that iron, copper, zinc, all of these elements which sit in the third transition metal part of the uh, periodic table, they all scatter really similarly. So it can be quite hard to tell them apart, but they have very different scattering factors for neutrons. So you might use those to identify that part of the local structure, but then you've got something else in there which neutrons don't scatter strongly from. And because it's this nuclear strong force, it's not a, an easy thing to predict. You, you have to look up the scattering factors for the neutrons. And it may just be that essentially neutrons don't really see that particular element. So that way you can do a combined study to get the complete picture using both X-rays and neutrons. Fascinating. Now, I want to ask you about something else, because I know that your role in ISIS is that of an instrument scientist. Tell us what that actually involves. Yes, it, it's a lot of fun putting that down on sort of uh, going to meetings and having a badge saying instrument scientist because everybody's completely perplexed as to what that might mean you actually do. So we have different instruments at ISIS which perform different types of measurements, looking at different science areas, using different techniques. So my particular instrument, I'm looking at the dynamics of materials in particular and how we can relate these dynamics to certain properties, especially functional properties. So as an instrument scientist, we tend to work two or three of us to an instrument, and we will typically spend a third of our time maintaining that instrument, developing it, trying to improve it, making sure everything's working as well as it possibly can be. A third of the time we'll be supporting outside users to do their experiment because we don't expect everybody to be a super expert. And there's certain things that we don't necessarily want people touching. So we're there to make sure that their experiment works as well as it possibly can. And also there's quite a bit of time is spent trying to help people decide whether it is right to do a neutron experiment. So we're available to give that advice. And then a third of my time I spend doing my own research, which is heavily neutron based, but there's no restriction on me to only use ISIS. So I regularly go to ILL, the Institut Laue Langevin in Grenoble, which is currently the European neutron source. In the future, there will be the ESS, the European Spallation Source in Lund in Sweden. But there are a number of these worldwide facilities, not a lot, 
there are far more X-ray synchrotrons in the world than there are neutron sources, but we tend to visit quite a few of them if we can, because our experiments are challenging. It's difficult to get time sometimes. So you know, we're quite happy to travel to perform our experiments. Well, let me ask you a little bit about your research. Now, I understand it's in ballocaloric materials, and I have to say, I had to Google that to uh, find out what on earth it was. So can you explain what those materials are? Uh, and then also how you use both ISIS and other neutron sources to help you with that research? So barocalorics are a subset of the caloric family. These are solid state materials which have a change in phase. And this happens when an external field is applied and it causes a large change in the entropy of that material. And if you've got it thermally isolated, this will lead to a change in temperature, which can form basis for a cooling or heating cycle. Barocalorics are the calorics in which the external field is hydrostatic pressure. So where we can squeeze our sample and we can then use that as a heating or cooling cycle. And out of the different possible calorics, so you also have magnetocalorics, elasto, electro, and some multi-calorics, Barocalorics have shown the greatest potential for cost-effective deployment because they're often based on abundant and cheap materials and they've demonstrated very good efficiencies. This uh, compares with magnetocalorics, which are perhaps slightly better known, where these are often based on rare earth materials. So things like gadolinium and europium. So very expensive materials which have some geopolitical issues, shall we say. So whereas barocalorics are often very widely available materials. So one example is ammonium sulfate, which is standard garden fertilizer. So this is a very cheap material. A large number of different barocalorics have been discovered in the last decade or so, but that work has really focused just on identifying a new barocaloric measuring its thermal properties to prove it is indeed barocaloric without really trying to understand why it's barocaloric. So my work is to explore the structure and dynamics of a number of different barocaloric materials using neutron scattering so that we can explore what's going on structurally and in the dynamics to try and explain why a given material is barocaloric. Because once we can understand how the material structure and dynamics provide this functional property, we can then try and do some crystal engineering. So we make a list of all the things that a material must have, and then we try and find one which matches up to this recipe in the hope that we're going to get a new, better barocaloric that's more efficient or cheaper to produce. So in the case of ammonium sulfate, it was long believed that the large change in entropy that happens at the solid-solid phase transition, it's actually a slight change in the symmetry of the structure, was related to an order-disorder transition. So in one structure, the ammonium tetrahedra were nicely ordered, and in the other, there was some disorder about a mirror plane. Now, we've shown from our 
diffraction and as spectroscopic measurements that this is not the case, that actually most of the entropy is vibrational in this material. So we've demonstrated the importance of actually exploring these things on an atomic scale rather than just making assumptions based on thermal measurements. I can understand from your research that you're right at the basic science end of looking at these materials. But just take me a little bit further down the uh, the value spectrum and, and, and explain a little bit what the potential uses of new balacaloric materials might be going forward. Okay, so today the most commonly used cooling technology is based on vapor compression. So this is what runs your fridge freezer and across all types of cooling so whether it's um, air conditioning refrigeration uh, cooling for computer high, high performance computing this uses currently about 20 to 25 percent of all global energy consumption and it produces around 10 percent of environmentally harmful emissions of these emissions two-thirds are indirect emissions from electricity use and one third are direct emissions originating from the leakage of the greenhouse gases, which are thousands of times more potent than carbon dioxide. So there's been a really strong push internationally on the political level to say we've got to stop using these gases which have high global warming potential and come up with an alternative. And this is something where calorics have a lot to offer because stating the obvious, if you've got a solid material, it can't leak. So we immediately get rid of the problem of the direct emissions. So we want to be able to find optimized barocalorics, which don't require huge amounts of pressure to be used because we want them to be suitable in the home, in an industrial context, which can be highly efficient by having a very large change in temperature for this small applied pressure and which are cheap and safe to use. So by my experiments looking at the very fundamental end of trying to understand what makes something a barocaloric in the first place, such that hopefully in the future we'll be able to develop more efficient, better barocalorics, which will then pass on to the device engineers who devise the best architecture for your particular material for its particular cooling application. Fantastic. Well, I wish you all the best with your research. We're nearly at the end of our time, but I did want to ask you one final question, which really is, is what's next for the ISIS uh, neutron and muon source over the coming few years? So we're continually looking at how we can develop the range of instrumentation because we want to make sure we're always at the cutting edge of research and new ideas come along for how we could make improvements. Technological developments mean improvements in detectors and electronics. So it's important that we're constantly reviewing our instrument suite. And as part of this, we currently have something called the Endeavour Programme. This it comprises four new instruments and five significant upgrades which will be delivered over a 10 year period when the funding is released. It's been allocated funds through the UKRI's infrastructure fund, and it is 
currently in with government waiting for some of the complications caused by a change in the structure of government when it comes to how science is being looked at but that's going to deliver transformative impact in three different societal challenge areas materials for the future clean growth and life sciences, which are all aligned with key government priorities in areas such as net zero, circular economy, hydrogen, and healthcare. So we're gonna be particularly looking at areas such as energy storage, carbon capture and sequestration, engineering components for reactors and renewable energy sources, techniques for drug delivery and vaccine production, and improvements in catalysis for chemical industries. Wonderful. Well, it sounds like you and your colleagues have got a lot of work to do over the coming years. That's all we've got time for today on the podcast. But Dr. Helen Walker, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Dr. Helen Walker, instrument scientist at the ISIS Neutron and Muon Source. You can find out more details about the Foundation for Science and Technology on our website at www.foundation.org.uk. The website has details of all our events, all our blogs, our journals, and all previous editions of this podcast. Until the next time, goodbye.